Hello, and welcome to the weekly Unheard podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Bonnie Greer, playwright, commentator, and columnist for The New European. And also, we have Nigel Cameron, who is technology editor here at Unheard. Now, you two have something interesting in common. Bonnie, you are an American who lives in Britain. Nigel is a Brit who lives in America. Yes. And we both know that winter is not here because of where we where we're from. Winter is Chicago. That's we know right. That. We know that. And Wisconsin. That is winter. So you laugh in the face of that our winter, winter, of our sprinkling yes. of snow and yes, everything exactly. riding to it, a halt. Exactly. Um, so we're delighted to have you um, on the podcast. Now, what we try and do uh, on Unheard is not talk about the news which is dominating the mainstream news cycles. We try and unearth and shine a bit of a light on stories which we think are important, but kind of underreported. So, um, Bonnie, I'm going to start with you. What is your underreported story of the week? I think it's uh, the, the reality of big data and how much it has changed our lives. And in fact, there isn't any turning back. I mean, the surface story is Facebook. Mm -hmm. The surface story is Mark Zuckerberg, Cambridge Analytica. But underneath it, is the story of how we have been changed, we are changing. And in fact, this is it. We are in a second Gutenberg revolution. We're, we're deep in it, and it's not going to turn around. But even Tim Berners-Lee is saying, you know, can we not try and do something to roll things back? He knows better than that. I mean, look, it, this is like the monks in the monastery sitting there with their scrolls and their pens going, gosh, the people in the square are reading the Bible. Let's go take the scrolls out there and see if we can stop them. It's not going to happen. This, this train has left this station. This, this ship has sailed. This rocket has launched. What we need now are people, commentators, scientists, actually explain to people that this is a new era. This is, this is, this is it. So is your sort of premise, it's not so much about the kind of headline goodies or baddies, we yes. are just in a completely new era and that as digital citizens, we've got to get with the program. The, the fact is that the, the election of Donald Trump is the first sort of major signal that we're in a new era. Um, and, and, you know, that's going to be picked apart and looked at for decades. But this is this is where we are. Uh, and we don't have the leadership yet because they're, you know, they're sort of like in the anodyne age, who can actually sit down and tell people what's really happened. Do you mean political leadership or tech leadership? We don't have political leadership. We're in, and because Paulus is the people, we need someone or ones who can say, you need to listen to people like Nigel because actually they know what they're talking about. We're not in that, we, we have moved away from that, but I think it's temporary. I don't think it's going to last Nigel, forever. I think that's the best cue that anyone has ever got on this um, podcast to start joining in. Very nicely set up. Thank you very much, Bonnie. No, I think it is extraordinary. I mean, we have leaders and leaders of different ages. This isn't really a generational exactly. issue. Um, who are so out of touch with Absolutely. these developments and who see them as sort of incremental and this is some new thing and, you know, we can fit it into our current system, whereas it is revolutionary. And I think, you know, it's, it's the rocket out of your various metaphors there. It's a rocket we're on. I mean, you know, Gutenberg was riding on a pony right. and now this <laughs> is a rocket. That's right. And we've gone so far 
And there's so much catch-up to do in terms of framing these questions, seeing their political valence, and coming up with regulatory structures and social responses, you know, cultural responses, which enable us to learn from this stuff rather exactly. than have it overwhelm us. Exactly. I mean, as somebody who was on the other side as a political advisor, the thing that I was always struck by was that most senior politicians can barely send an email by themselves. Exactly. Then suddenly, sort of Rachel Weston from Google rocks up in their office with, like, you know, seven highly trained, highly digitally technology, like kind of experts. And they they don't even mean to, but they just run rings around the politicians. And how the politicians can even begin to frame regulation, Nigel, is that even possible? Well, it's extraordinarily difficult. I mean, we're constantly living, you know, with a barn door and the horses escape. But I mean, but this is going to be the way we live now. And these changes are taking place faster and faster. So we're going to have to get much, much smarter about the way we engage these conversations. I mean, I think things like Facebook going going, going down, which could well happen. I mean, remember MySpace? These oh, companies yeah. do oh, go yeah. down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think they're going to be really big cautionary tales that will help, help the process. I, I think what's fascinating to add to what Nigel's saying is, we have a cadre of old men who are leading us. Now, that is fascinating to me. Partly, that's an unconscious reaction to what's going on. You think, we think we need a father figure or a prophet or a patriarch to somehow stand on top of the mountain with a rod and say, the river will turn back. You know, it's, it's not... It, actually, we need a ten-year-old to actually be up front. <laughs> no, I'm very serious. It, what what is what's interesting about the kids at Parkland, the ones who survived that massacre in Florida, is that old school people are dumping on them, and they're saying, "Right, that's what we are." Right, next. So they understand the environment that we're in now. They understand the world we're, we're in now. We need people in their 20s and teens to actually stand up and take charge. But that will never happen because that's not the way we are. But I'm fascinated by the, the sort of plethora of old, you know, gray men, gray hairs, that we suddenly think, and it's unconscious, we suddenly think they're somehow going to turn this back. That's the most dangerous thing there, to me. There is something, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's, there is a great irony, isn't there, about sort of, you know, if you look at the strong men of the world in terms of politics, and then you look in the world of tech, who is the most important man on the planet? You could argue it's Mark Zuckerberg, this very young guy up against these old guys. Well, I mean, he's a very naive young guy. Not all young people are all that smart. I don't think he's very smart at all. No, he's good, he's so. good at doing one thing. I he's not savvy. No. I think there are, there are two revolutions coming. I mean, one plainly is a women-led revolution. Mm -hmm. and that's all. I think there'll be a complete flip in 25 years' time. Women will have all the interesting jobs. Because yep. they're all jobs about change. They're yes. all jobs about relationships, all the new jobs. Um, but at the and same emotional time, intelligence and creativity well, and all those the, things. These are 21st, 20, in the 20th century, it was run by guys. They were quite good at all the boring stuff. 21st century is not like that. And women are they are tuned. Companies want value. They are women. But I think also there's a generational shift taking place. Um, and uh, I think that, I mean, Parkland is, is a great example of this. Um, but, I mean, for example, I, I mean, I had coffee the other day with a fr fr friend of mine um, uh, who is, you know, she's in her late 20s. She was in the sort of Forbes 30 under 50s in her late 20s. And she's been developing AIs, you know, since she was in her teens. Now, these are different kinds of people exactly. all together. Exactly. And I think, mercifully, they're ready to help rule tomorrow. So do you think the way to create some kind of regulation, which will probably never be perfect, is it a question of asking the Mark Zuckerbergs of this world to do the right thing and help us regulate them in good faith? Or should we be looking to a new generation of people to help us sort of navigate? I, I mean, what, what 
what Nigel is talking about is what we have to do. I have been saying this for years. We have to sweep the board. It's not going to happen, but we need to sweep the board away. All the old guys, everything that needs to go. And we need to get more women and we need to get younger people in because they know what this world is about. I know this sounds a horrible thing to say, but it really is what has to be done. Bonnie, I hear what you're saying. I believe the children are the future. I hear you. Absolutely. Now, Nigel, moving on to your underreported story. I'm really interested in this and slightly terrified at the same time. It's very interesting. We tend to think short-term politics is all about short-term, which is one of the problems with democracy, because it means short-term is all politics really wants to be about. Um, whereas the big threats we face in the world are longer-term threats, um, whether they're threats of disease, you know, or whether, for example, they're threats of you know, near-Earth objects, these things floating around in space that might hit us. I don't know um, if you saw the movie Melancholia, came out about four or five years ago, but it was a melancholic movie about a huge object which might or might not hit the Earth. I won't spoil, won't spoil the ending for you. Uh, but it, it was, wasn't to do with Trump, was it? it um, <laughs> let's, let's not go there. Exactly. Um, and so NASA, mercifully, you know, the, the, the US Space, Space Administration, is on, is on, you know, it's on, on, on the job. And they scan the sky all the time for potential objects, what they call potentially hazardous objects, PHOs. And they have an office, would you believe, called the Planetary Defense Coordination Office to defend the planet. But America does some wonderful things for the whole world, like protecting us from asteroids. And they have picked up a particular object with the wonderful name Bennu. Ben, you see, that sounds quite cute. It sounds like a puppy. It does. It sounds, it sounds like, like a, a puppy. wee puppy. You know, this, this is the way the world ends, with a puppy. Um, <laughs> and Bennu is out there, and there's a chance, it's a small chance, but it is a not non-trivial chance that Bennu could, you know, smash into us, not tomorrow afternoon, but on September the 21st, 2135. How can they be so precise? Mathematics. Mathematics. Newton, you yes, know, yes. devised all that kind of stuff. That's right. Um, it can be and, done. And they're on the... So, um, they've actually sent off a rocket to have a look at Bennu and come back with samples. Wow. And uh, if things are looking bad, sometime between now and 2135, uh, we shall send out a nuclear missile and we shall get rid of Bennu once and for all, or perhaps send up a huge, heavy rocket to push Bennu into a new orbit. This is absolutely I love fascinating, I love Bonnie. What do you, are you not scared by this? Well, I'm going to be here for one thing. I'm being very <laughs> selfish. But the other thing is we know the dinosaurs were probably destroyed by an asteroid. I mean, they. so these things have come toward us and hit us in the history of this planet. Um, and Stephen Hawking uh, would talk about all the time that, you know, we need to get ready for this. We may even need to get off of here. So I, I think this is incredible. And this is the kind of work that I think we need to be talking about more because it's going to shape our education. It should shape our education. It should shape the way that we look at the resources on this earth because we know that gold and so forth actually are outer space materials. So we, we, we need to actually <clears throat> begin to understand what that means, because as Bennu comes toward us, it's not going to suddenly appear. Bennu's going to change the atmosphere. Bennu's going to do a lot of things that it's going to affect us. So this is a wonderful time, 
you know, if we weren't so hung up on trying to figure out how to do our Facebook friends, that this is a wonderful time to actually investigate this. I think it's very exciting and that NASA is actually set up and ready, which is what the UK should be doing. I mean, these are kind of uh, sort of, of international things that we can cooperate and do together to protect our mutual environment. This is our home. All I of think us are what's here. so brilliant is that there is an office to defend the planet. I That's mean, how wonderful. good would that be on your on your business card? It's quite interesting, you know, NASA has two different offices. One is this one to defend our planet. There's another one called the the, the, the Planetary Protection Officer, whom oh, I actually oh, know. Oh, wow. And she's there to protect... Oh, to I protect, love that she's a she. Of she's course a, she is. Yes, she's of course. She's there to protect other planets. Wow. That's her job. Of course. So that when you... we send stuff up there, it won't damage them. She's so caring. So, so we're, exactly. we're doing this, you know, equal opportunity plan for protection <laughs> at NASA. It's very interesting. They're all, they're one, see, governments, governments do terrible things at the top. They do very wonderful things down the exactly. bottom. That's exactly. so true. In these really underreported areas. Exactly. And also, I think what's so fascinating about this story is, A, it's, it's exciting and you can imagine the film right now in terms of trying to stop Bennu and how you stop it, if you, if you can stop it. But it also just shows how short-termist we are in our analysis of what is happening in the world. I think it's very scary. And, I mean, I think what one thing this is a very good example of is, is you know, strategic risk issues, existential risk issues. Um, you know, you know, Lord Rees, Martin Rees, you know, the Astronomer Royal, former President of Royal Society, um, he has a wonderful little book came out about 10 years ago. Hardly anybody bothered reading it. Never made the bestseller lists. And the, the, the British title of it is Our Final Century. And he wanted to have a question mark, but the publisher said no. The American edition, <laughs> you know, we can make fun of America here, can't we, Bonnie? Um, the publisher said, we will call it our final hour. Yeah, with no yeah. question mark. Sell this, sell it. Um, but what he does in his book is he goes through dozens of fundamental risk questions like disease, like asteroids, and many, many more, um, which, in fact, could compromise the entire planet in the next 100 years. Wow. And the problem with de democracy, turnover leadership, people thinking very short term, it's issues, issues are always secondary or tertiary. And I think we need leaders who actually can scoop up these longer-term issues. One of the ironies of all this, the pace of change, is that when things are changing slowly, you don't have to think far ahead. It's easy to, exactly. but you don't have to. Exactly. When things change fast, it's much more difficult, but you have to think fast. Yeah. Which is why we need younger people in charge. I mean, in charge, not being apprenticed, in charge. But because the younger your brain is, you're able to cope with speed. And, and we are in a point in time right now where things are moving so fast. We can't go back and go and check with something. We have to keep moving forward. The other thing too is that since, I think since the industrial revolution, we've actually not gone forward in terms of our own brain, we've gone backwards. I was just about to make that point. We've become, particularly where we are now, we are very nostalgic. We're quite politically retrospective. We're quite culturally nostalgic as well. And it does feel at a time when technology is changing so fast, there are these huge issues. It goes back to the question of leadership that we talked about earlier. We talked about it in terms of the, the tech stuff. But this point that you make, Nigel, so well, which is nobody is thinking beyond our five-year cycles. Well. I'm very pleased that there is equality um, at NASA, but what I do hope exists in NASA is equal pay, because that is a highly important issue. And the story that I want to pick out is that we've heard a lot about the pay gap at the BBC, but what a lot of people don't realise is that big companies are going to have to report on their gender pay gap 
pretty soon in the next couple of weeks, by the 4th of April. And less than a third of companies look like they're on track to do this. There are 9,000 companies that should, under the legislation, report on their gender pay gap. The average pay they pay their men and the average pay they pay their women. Now, I have um, a particular interest in this because I helped draft the legislation that made this happen, the Equality Act, in 2010. And I fought tooth and nail to get this clause in, to get some transparency. But my worry is, is that we've had a lot of the hysteria around the BBC. We've had a lot of hysteria around, you know, kind of top famous women not getting paid enough money uh, and equal to their male counterparts. And that's a huge issue. But this goes right across every bit of um, society. It goes across different businesses as well. And it's complicated. It's not just looking at the figures on their own. It's looking at how you get women to move into those senior jobs, how you offer better childcare, how you get fathers to take up paternity leave. There were some reports out today or this week saying that the take-up is incredibly low for men to take time off to do the, the childcare. And this loops back into the earlier conversation we were having about more female leadership in the future. So I hope that the kind of hysteria around the BBC doesn't mask the fact that lots of other companies should be reporting their pay gap and they might not do it. Partly is we've, we still have a generation who believe in the old notion of head of household. <clears throat> so the old notion of head of household. Uh, the head of household is usually in people's heads, a man. Yeah. So, which isn't true, uh, but it, it, so there's a notion of men having to have more money because they are head of household. That has to be changed. And the only way it can be changed, I think, is to, again, my, my parachute fast track women into positions of power where that idea can be broken down to the relief of men. Because there are men who want actually to be have paternity leave, they want to raise their children, they want to have time off as well. We can only have that now with women who can get into positions of power and diversify the thinking about this, because we are very much stuck into head of household thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 mean, I have some sympathy for quota approaches and all that sort of thing in leadership. Um, but ultimately, this, this is a market issue. I mean, why on earth would you want to exclude people who live north of the Watford Gap or west of the Rockies or whatever, you know, uh, exclude half the nation from hiring somebody for a job? Um, why would you want to give preferences to people who live south of the Watford Gap? I mean, it's just, I mean, the, the, the market logic of this is, is absurd. What companies are doing is they're damaging themselves and they're, and they're damaging them with their own capacity to be successful, their productivity um, and their value um, by having exclusionary policies that basically advantage half the human race, disadvantage the other half. I mean, ultimately, this is going to bore its way into the, the dull minds of people who are in charge. If they want to be successful, they need to be embracing of the fact that the human race actually but, but at least two genders. But you know that companies are entities. They are like human beings. This company, a company A, has been rooted, let's say, in 1956. That is the culture of it. Even though they've changed the technology, they've done everything else, that is the persona of company A. And unless somebody turns around inside of company A and pick up your, I mean, you've hit it on the head in the sense that somehow people are going to have to realize that you're actually going to make more money if you do this. You're actually going to be in the groove if you do this. 
it's going to hurt, but this is what you have to do. Politically, it's being shown. What's very fascinating about the United States is that people are beginning to see that women are starting to drive the vote. Actually, women do drive the vote. Women make the household vote. And when they start to turn around and look at something that they like or they don't like, that shifts the vote. So it's going to be but begin there. I mean, I think the the problem for so many um, organizations is that I think everybody sees us coming down the track and completely agrees with it on an objective level. I mean, why would you exclude all this talent and, you know, um, thought and, and all this kind of thing? And it's, there's a great business case for sort of diversity, but that unconscious bias is still so embedded in most people's boardrooms, which is still pretty male pale and still. Like, I have friends who work in the city. They're preparing their gender pay gaps at the moment. Everyone's tearing their hair out about it and they're trying to prepare their reports in the best way possible. But actually, when it comes to, okay, who are you next gonna hire to put on the board, they're still hiring in the same mold. Yes, I mean, people people are always in favor of change, innovation, and all that. <laughs> when it's somebody else, else. Yes. yes. But it has to begin with you, and it's yeah. uncomfortable that everyone is threatened, and you know, people have built careers and expectations. Um, but at the end of the day, um, one of the implications of the data revolution and some of these other technology changes is they're forcing the issue. Exactly. Would you, therefore, we'd mentioned the quota word, would you be supportive of, let's say, a period of time where companies had quotas for women? Well, I mean, th- these have been used successfully in some European countries. I'm a little wary because it looks like, you know, quotas, you know, for people, you know, who have three heads or something like that. And, I mean, women women don't need help like that. But I think as a way of forcing the but issue... But we do. As a, well, because we're, we're not getting to those levels. As a, as a way of forcing the issue, maybe you have five years, you know, starting today when every company has to work with a quota and see how, see how that works. Well, Nigel, now this is where I'm going to disagree with you. I... And the result of, I wouldn't have gone to university if it wasn't a quota system. Now, I would have got in there eventually, but the university was compelled to look for me. See, and this is the difference. And I think when, a, when an entity is compelled to look, just open up the, you know, open up the catchment area, then, and, and, and bring in a, a demographic. Then it comes to change. It was interesting listening to Mark Zuckerberg's interview last night. You know, he, I mean, and I felt sorry for this kid, and I was watching him. Uh, And he said, I had no idea this was going to happen. But what the interviewer, a woman, said to him, what do you think it's going to be like for your daughters? He's got two daughters. His face completely changed. His body changed. And he said... I got to do something for them because I know that their their future and their life is going to be different. So he's going to have to cane through change, and that's what we're talking about. Really. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you go back, go back to civil rights in the states, which mm. was the most dramatic example of exactly. this. You know, an LBJ calling out the National Guard. I mean, using guns and to he, force and he, something. And he used law. He, he used law. Force the issue, and sometimes yes. you have to do that. Maybe yes. we should do that here. Yes. Well, I'm. In complete agreement with you. I think we've all agreed. Quotas all the way, quotas all the way. Now, we're just reaching the final bit of the podcast where we discuss our hero and our villain of the week. And I think there's one story in town this week and it captures both heroes and villains. So I'm going to start with the hero, the heroine, uh, a journalist called Carol Cadwaller, who broke this story. She has been toiling away on this for many many years and I think we're sort of agreed totally, that she is totally she's old-fashioned notebook pen doorstep run down the street return my call please 
I know where you are, blah, blah, blah. That's how she did it. And she's been awarded numerous awards, but she is definitely the hero or heroine of the week. And I mean, for me, it's a reminder in this era of screaming fake news at everything and that mm. the newspapers don't matter. Actually, good quality, robust, fearless investigative journalism is so important without fear or favor. I mean, she was being threatened with legal action left, right and center, but she persisted. No, I think I think I think it's absolutely heroic. It's really interesting that even today, you know, it's it's often one person or a, a small organisation you know, will go after a story and persist, and then something breaks open which transfixes the entire planet. You, you know, you said something that I loved about women, and it's it's true. Um, even my other hero up, I would even put Stormy Daniels in this, in mm. the sense that there are women who are just saying, "I'm not going anywhere." <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here until you come out and you answer my question. And what's been happening as a result of Me Too and all of it is that these doors are opening. And you even got Mark Zuckerberg sitting there now realizing that he's raising two daughters. And that is a really important Point. moment. Um, Nigel, final word from you, your villain of the week. Well, my, my villain will be Mr. Nix, the wonderfully named Mr. Nix. And I want to be the person who says, Nix got Nix. None did. of the press has actually used that Copyright so far. Nigel Nicks Cameron. Got Excellent. Old Nick Nix got Nixed. Um, who's this guy we saw on, on the Channel 4 clips basically saying the most outrageous things about what their company was doing? What really scared me about that revel itself was really about Kenya. The Kenya, the Kenya yeah, election was, was the most the sensitive monster. thing. That was a monster. Extraordinarily important country yeah. in, in the African context. Yeah. And if to these the African guys economy, really were pulling yeah. the strings, that, yes. that, 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 that was that, the absolutely monster. terrifying. Um, yeah. I loved his defence, which was um, I sort of only said the things that I said because I was trying to double bluff the, the other oh, people. And then he tried to give this very um, British sort of kind of response. I was thinking, only in Britain would we have an old Etonian giving the sort of bird, exactly, the Bertie Wooster exactly, sort of defence exactly. on things. But he was shriveling at every step, so it was good. Well, listen, Bonnie, Nigel, thank you so much for joining me this week. I'm Aisha Hazarika, and you've been listening to the weekly Unheard podcast. Join us next week. Mm -hmm.